Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. In this talk, Peter Duffy takes us back to the Peninsular War, as he tells us about Wellington's campaign in Portugal and the importance of the lines at Torres Vedras. Now, why have I chosen the subject of Wellington and the lines at Torres Vedras to be the history topic today? I have for a long time been interested in Wellington, not just as a general, but also as a politician and prime minister in the early 19th century. Now, that's a critical period in the development of the United Kingdom. It is in the campaigns in Portugal, and particularly at Torres Vedras, that we can see early and brilliant illustrations of the qualities that made him one of the outstanding leaders of his time. Some years ago, I joined a tour organized by the company, The Cultural Experience, to visit Lisbon, Oporto, the Battle Signs, and Torres Vedras. Now, the trip helped me to understand the real skill that Wellington had in choosing the best sites for a battleground and for fighting on his terms. I also gained a deep respect for the incredible endurance of the men in the British Army that he led as they marched mile after mile in intolerable conditions of heat and cold across the plains of Portugal, Spain, and eventually France. So who was Wellington? Now, for ease of understanding, I shall use that name throughout, even though he did not assume it until after the Battle of Talavera in 1809. Up until then, his family name was Wesley or Wellesley. He was born of an Anglo-Irish family, a member of the Protestant ascendancy, and after attending the riding school at Angers in France, he decided at an early stage to follow a military career. His brother was appointed as governor general in India and Wellington became his military commander. In a series of campaigns with victories at Essay and Saint-Gatapan, he made Britain the paramount power in India, driving out the French and other powers in the process. It was in India that he learned how to handle large units of troops in the face of the enemy and the importance of organizing an efficient supply train. In 1805, he returned to Britain and entered political life there. Now, at that time, Britain had been in conflict with France and Napoleon for 12 years, and the conflict had effectively reached a stalemate. The British Navy had virtually eliminated France and other European powers from their overseas colonies. And at the same time, in continental Europe, Britain has supported with funding, but rarely and unsuccessfully through the supply of troops, the various anti-French coalitions that had developed. And all these had in turn been regularly defeated by the French. Napoleon decided to end the stalemate by uniting the whole of the Europe into a blockade of trade with Britain. Now this has been called the continental system, and we could say it's a forerunner of European Union post-Brexit. However, there was one country 
Portugal that refused to obey Napoleon's orders, largely because of the timely arrival of a British fleet in Lisbon. Napoleon assembled an army to invade Portugal and bring it to heel. To do so, his troops would have to cross a country and the territory of his presumed ally, Spain. In a series of harsh diplomatic moves, which also caused the downfall of the dictator of Spain, Godoy, Napoleon forced the abdication of the Spanish king and then of his son, Ferdinand. Instead, he placed his own brother, Joseph, on the Spanish throne in their place. Now, the result of this was a series of anti-French uprisings in Spain, brutally suppressed by the French. What then happened was there was a series of anti-French uprisings in Spain, brutally suppressed in Madrid and in Seville, Cadiz, Valencia and Asturias. And delegates from the Asturian Junta went to London seeking support from the British. And as a result, Wellington, with troops that had been assembled to attack the Spanish colony of Mexico, was diverted instead to assist the Portuguese and after that the Spanish. Now, before I begin to talk in detail about Wellington's Portuguese campaigns, it might be useful for you if I describe briefly how early 19th century armies were organized and operated. Now, how many of you in your youth played the game of rock, paper, scissors, where each defeats one of the others, but is defeated in its turn, e.g. rock blunts scissors, but is wrapped up by paper, scissors cuts paper, but are blunted by rock. So too did each of the main elements of the British and French armies in the Peninsular War have their advantages and their vulnerabilities. And the structure of each side's armies also reflected the societies that produced them. Now, the French army was the product of the revolution, the levée en masse, supported by conscription, which regularly produced new cohorts of young men and large armies. Now, the standard unit in the field was a column, needing little formal training, 40 men deep and wide, moving like a battering ram, speedily in attack, and able to punch holes in the lines of its opponents, throwing them into total disarray. Now, as noted, the practice of the French army was to move and maneuver quickly, living off the land as it did so, and thus requiring relatively little in the way of provisioning support. The problem with this system was it was totally unsuited to the needs of an army of occupation, which the French armies became in Spain and Portugal, and indeed, it was their practice of enforced scavenging for supplies that aroused the local populations against them as guerrillas. Nor would it work for an army in retreat, where any available supplies would have been consumed in the advance, as Napoleon found later when he was forced to retreat from Russia. The column formation was also vulnerable to artillery, to cavalry, and to a capable and steadfast opponent in line formation, whose regular volleying decimated both the front and side ranks of the column, destroying its impetus. Now, as opposed to the French column, the standard battlefield formation of the British army remained the line developed through the wars of the 18th century. Its success relied upon the discipline of highly trained troops, maintaining their formation and a steady rate of volleying in the face of enemy attacks. As Britain did not operate a conscription system, 
Wellington always had to be aware that he had the only British expeditionary army in existence and that trained soldiers capable of holding their position in line and maintaining their rate of fire were a precious resource and were not to be recklessly used. Like infantry columns, soldiers in lines were vulnerable to cavalry and artillery attacks. Cavalry attacks were countered by the infantry forming into squares. However, in any formation, both cavalry and infantry were vulnerable to artillery fire, which had under Napoleon, an artillery officer by training, come to dominate the battlefield. As we shall see, Wellington's practice to counter this was to select battlefield sites where his troops could occupy the reverse slope of a hilltop, out of sight, and be protected from artillery fire until the last moment. Shortly before his appointment to command the British forces in Portugal, Wellington said to a colleague, the French have a new system of tactics which has outmaneuvered and overwhelmed all the armies of Europe. But if what I hear of their system of maneuvers be true, I think it is a false one against steady troops. Now in Portugal, the British forces relied on regular provisioning delivered from the sea by the Royal Navy, rather than on local scavenging. Even this system had its drawbacks, as can be seen from a heartfelt letter that Wellington reputedly wrote to the Foreign Office in London. Gentlemen, while marching from Portugal to a position which commands the approach to Madrid and the French forces, my officers had been diligently complying with your requests, which had been sent by His Majesty's ship from London to Lisbon, and thence by dispatch rider to our headquarters here. We have enumerated our saddles, bridles, tents and poles, and all manner of sundry items for which His Majesty's government holds me accountable. I have dispatched reports on the character, wit and spleen of every officer. Each item, every farthing has been accounted for, with two regrettable exceptions, for which I beg your indulgence. Unfortunately, the sum of one shilling and ninepence remains un unaccounted for, in one of the infantry battalion's petty cash. And there has been a hideous confusion as to the number of jars of raspberry jam issued to one cavalry regiment during a sandstorm in Western Spain. This reprehensible carelessness may be related to the pressure of circumstances, since we are at war with France, a fact which may come as a bit of a surprise to you gentlemen in Whitehall. Which brings me to my present purpose which is to request elucidation of my instructions from His Majesty's government, so that I may better understand why I'm dragging an army over these barren plains. I construe that perforce, it must be one of two alternative duties as given below. I shall pursue either one with the best of my ability, but I cannot do both. Firstly, to train an army of uniformed British clerks in Spain for the benefit of the accountants and copy boys in London, or perchance, Two, to see that the forces of Napoleon are driven out of Spain. Your most obedient servant, Wellington. Now there's a personal note here. The company that I worked for made a significant investment in buying a Spanish subsidiary. The investment went wrong and the subsidiary started losing serious money. I was asked to go out to Spain to try and turn it around. And whilst in the process of doing so, I was faced by repeated calls from London for more information and with numerous queries on the information I had already sent. 
Eventually, in frustration, I sent a copy of Wellington's letter to the responsible director in London. I don't remember it having much impact, but sending it did make me feel an awful lot better. Initially, therefore, Wellington was not able to move his army too far from its supply depots in Portugal. And it was only later when provisioning arrangements were finally secure that he felt able to move finally out of Portugal into Spain. Early attempts had risked the coherence and indeed the existence of the British Expeditionary Army. In July 1808, Wellington landed with 9,000 men at Mondego Bay. It's on the west coast of Portugal, and a number of the boats tipped up and men were lost. Now, Mondego Bay is 80 miles north of Lisbon, which at that time was occupied by the French under Marshal Junot. Wellington's small force was joined by a further 4,000 troops from Gibraltar, but he lacked any significant numbers of cavalry or artillery. However, he moves 50 south towards Lisbon. Junot sent one of his best generals, Laborde, with a force of 4,000 men to delay the British advance until he could be joined by further troops under General Loison. When joined, their force would be equal to that of Wellington, while Junot remained in Lisbon with sufficient troops to control the city, the port, and the surrounding countryside. Laborde took up a strong position on a hilltop at Rodica, from whence he would be able to dominate Wellington's drive towards Lisbon. What actually Wellington then did, he sent two detachments to attack Laborde's flanks, and with his superior numbers, he drove Laborde out of his position and thus into retreat, spoiling any chances of a junction with Lazon. Wellington now moved quickly to secure a position at Vimiero, where the British fleet was landing reinforcements bringing the army strength to 17,000, plus additional cavalry and artillery. With the same fleet were two generals who were to supersede him in command of the army. General Moore was also about to arrive with further troops, and the War Office considered that a total force would be too large to be entrusted to a junior lieutenant general, which Wellington was at the time. Whilst the senior general was still on board the ship, Wellington learnt that Juno had arrived to attack him, with an army of 13,000 men and 24 guns. Wellington placed his men on the lines on the reverse slope of the ridge at Vineur to protect them against Junot's artillery and to conceal their number. Junot drove his columns up the steep slope towards the bridge positions and they were shredded firstly by Wellington's artillery fire and then by the withering fire from Wellington's lines, followed by devastating bayonet charges. At the end of the day, the French were in full retreat, having lost 2,000 of their men and nearly all their guns. The road to Lisbon was open. Just at the moment of victory, one of the senior generals landed and called off the pursuit. Terms were to be negotiated with the French and incredibly favourable to the French they were too. The British fleet was to transport Junot with his army to France with all their possessions including all their loot from Portugal. The French soldiers were free to rejoin the fight once they were back in France. Part of the initial agreement was that a Russian fleet had been interned in Lisbon and should be returned to Russia, but under French control. The British Admiral refused this and the fleet was taken back to a British port. When the British government learnt of this agreement called the Convention of Sintra, they were appalled. The generals responsible, including Wellington, who had grudgingly signed the convention, were called to England for a court of inquiry. Although formally cleared, the two senior generals were never employed again. 
command of the British army in Portugal was passed, much to his surprise, to Sir John Moore. Now, what happened during the exercise of Moore's command is another story, yet one vital to understanding Wellington's later conduct of military affairs in the Iberian Peninsula. Moore took his army from Portugal into Spain, just as Napoleon, furious at the news that a French army had surrendered, and here they'd surrendered the Spanish at Belen. Napoleon collected 300,000 troops, including Junot and the army that had been repatriated to France following the Convention of Sintra, and he invaded Spain and crushed all the Spanish armies that opposed him. Moore, who was eager to carry out the orders that he'd received from London to support the Spanish, found that the Spanish armies that he was supposed to support had evaporated under the Napoleonic onslaught. Because of the French forces covering his route into Portugal, he was forced to retreat towards Coruña in the northwest Spain, where a fleet was assembled to evacuate his troops. In appalling weather conditions and increasingly short of the provisions that he had been promised by the Spaniards, his retreat very nearly became a rout, as discipline and elements of his army collapsed. Only the order of his rearguard prevented him from being totally overwhelmed by the French. At last, the remnants of his forces reached Coruña. Prior to embarkation, the French attacked again, and in the battle, Moore was killed, his death inspiring the famous lines. Not a drum was heard, not a funeral note, as his course to the ramparts we hurried. Not a soldier discharged his funeral shot o'er the grave where our hero we buried. Slowly and sadly we laid him down from the field of his frame, fresh and gory. We carved not a line and we raised not a stone, but we left him alone in his glory. Now, I have been to Corinna and seen Moore's lowly grave there. It is a sad testimony to the story of yet another British army being plucked by the British Navy from total defeat. The lessons that Wellington took from this were not to venture with their British force from Portugal into Spain, unless supplies from the Spanish could be guaranteed, and always to have in mind the need to protect the means to be able to extract his army in good order by sea in case of grave necessity. Yet after the withdrawal from Coruña, the British government still saw Portugal and Spain as fertile fields for troubling Napoleon. They decided to reinforce the small army that Moore had left in Lisbon and sent Wellington to be in charge of it. In April 1809, Wellington landed for the second time in Portugal, this time directly in the port of the capital, Lisbon. He had approximately 25,000 regular British and German troops. Now, of course, at this time, the British king was also king of Hanover and part of the army of Hanover had joined the British and was fighting for them. He had also 15,000 Portuguese regulars of uncertain capability. The French had deployed against him 25,000 troops in the north under Marshal Soult, threatening Portugal's second city, Oporto, and Marshal Victor with 25,000 threatening Lisbon itself from the east. Wellington decided to strike north against Soult, leaving a significant part of his forces to mask Lisbon against Victor. Moving quickly, he arrived in four days at the south bank of the Douro River, opposite the city of Porto, which had just been occupied by Soult, 
who'd brushed aside the Portuguese defence forces there. Soult had destroyed the bridge over the Dura River and, so he thought, had destroyed or brought to the north bank all the river craft which Wellington might use to ferry his troops across. However, a local realised that there were four large wine barges moored on the north shore and using a small skiff that he owned, these were captured by British troops and brought across to the south shore. Here British troops loaded abroad and were ferried across the river. Wellington was facing very deep gorge, very steep on both sides. What the British troops did when they went across the river, they disembarked and climbed up very, very steep slopes and occupied the seminary and they were strongly reinforced. Now Soult began to attack them. They were able to destroy a series of French counterattacks whilst more and more troops were ferried across the river to the seminary. As Soult threw in his reserve troops to this battle, he left his right flank undefended. The Portuguese inhabitants of Porto took their boats over to the south shore and began ferrying across increasing contingents of the British army. The two wings of the British then joined to drive Soult out of Porto. He left behind 300 dead, 1,100 prisoners, nearly 60 guns, and his dinner for Wellington to finish. Now, Wellington had, on leaving Lisbon, detached General Beresford with 6,000 Portuguese to guard his right flank as he moved north. This force now threatened Soult's disintegrating army, which fled into Spain, abandoning its transport guns, losing nearly a quarter of its men. Following his victory at Oporto, the British government reinforced Wellington with an additional 8,000 troops. Thus strengthened, Wellington then moved into Spain to join a Spanish army numbering 33,000 under its aging and obstructive commander, Captain General Don Gregorio de la Cuesta, just outside the city of Talavera. However, the Spanish, without Wellington, who thought the venture was foolhardy, without adequate supplies and transport, decided to drive towards Madrid. They were routed by Marshal Victor, who'd concentrated 46,000 troops there. When the remnants of the Spanish army arrived back at Talavera, Wellington gave them the strongest position and most secure one on the left. Napoleon had ordered his marshals in Spain to concentrate on destroying the British army in order to stop any further meddling. So the French efforts were concentrated on Wellington However, in spite of repeated attacks by the French columns, largely focused on the British lines, the latter held, and it was the French who eventually withdrew, leaving 7,000 dead and 17 of their guns. Yet the French still had major forces in Spain, and Wellington now learned that Soult had assembled 50,000 troops and was advancing from the north to cut off his route back to Portugal where alone he could be sure of being supplied from the sea and, if necessary, finally, use the port of Lisbon as the escape route for his army, as Moore had done at Coruña. Lacking the supplies repeatedly promised by the Spanish, but never delivered, and with his army sickening with cholera and typhus, Wellington withdrew to safer quarters on the Portuguese border with Spain. It was vital that to maintain any hope of an eventual defeat of the Napoleonic forces, in Portugal and Spain, unlike Sir John Moore, he was able to maintain a British army in the field as an effective fighting force 
and for this he had to rely on being continually supplied from the sea. Failing reliable supplies from his Spanish allies at this stage, he could not move his army too far from the ports of Lisbon and Oporto, where food and equipment could be replenished from British transports. Now, this approach contrasted with the French supply system, where the armies were used to living totally off the land that they passed through. As I said earlier, this suited an army in attack, but not an army of occupation, as the French were in Spain and Portugal. Here, this alienated the local populations and lay behind the rise of guerrilla troops that increasingly hampered and wore out the troops that had of necessity to increasingly enforce their requisitions. Now, Wellington had seen in Oporto that the very geography of the port of Portugal inhibited any rapid movement from the north of the country to the south. The steep hill ranges are cut east to west by deep river gorges such as the Douro, difficult to cross. And at the same time, there are only two roads running north to south in Portugal that were suitable for cavalry and artillery. Any French advance on Lisbon would be forced to use one of these. But Lisbon stood at the end of a long, thin peninsula. And to the north of this peninsula lay the range of hills of Torres Vedras that ran from the Atlantic to the River Tagus. In 1809, soon after Wellington had withdrawn his troops to a secure position on the Portuguese frontier, he visited Lisbon. His long-term objective was to hold his army in being, so that it remained a threat to the Napoleonic forces, and not to be forced to an ignominious withdrawal, as more had been from Corinna, and as Chatham had been more recently from Valkyrie. He also needed to keep it sheltered from the sparse condition of the country, as well as from the attacks of the French. To do this, he had to protect Lisbon and its port as a source of his supplies and reinforcement and only, if necessary, the port of his army's escape in good order. From Lisbon, with his chief engineer, he surveyed the range of hills at Torres Vedras. This range of hills is 30 miles north of Lisbon, and he ordered the construction of three lines of defence, an inner one, St. Julian, at the extreme tip of the southern peninsula to cover an embarkation, principal line, 20 miles north, and an outer line, six miles north of that, running right away across the Lisbon Peninsula. In all, there were more than 50 miles of earthworks, redoubts, and abatis were to be constructed. Precipices were to be scarped, forests cleared, and stone walls were to be bound on mountains. But fearful lest the French should hear of these elaborate preparations, and anticipating a prolonged siege, Wellington confided his intentions to no one but those directly concerned. So secretly were the works put in hand that months elapsed before even the most senior officers of the army suspected their existence. Whilst he was instructing his engineers, he was also consulting with the naval commander-in-chief about embarkation arrangements and transports. The latter should be permanently stationed in the River Tagus. In the event of failure in the field, he was resolved to embark and to bring his army away safely. Everything is prepared for us, he told a colleague, either to go or to stay. He refused continual pressure, both from his own government and from the Spanish, to return to campaign in Spain, saying, Till the evils of which I have reason to complain are remedied, till I see that magazines established for the supply of the army, and a regular system adopted for keeping them filled, and an army upon whose exertions I can depend, captained by officers capable and willing to carry out into execution operations which may have been planned by mutual agreement, I cannot enter into any system of cooperation with the Spanish armies. He had huge political pressure, both from London 
and of course from the Spanish hunters in Spain, that he should move his army out there and attack the French. And he said, no, no way. Now, by 1810, Napoleon still had 300,000 men in Spain, but the situation was not secure for him there. His forces were divided between military districts, with a marshal at the head of each district reporting directly to him in Paris, rather than to his brother Joseph, the King of Spain in Madrid, who was thus reduced to a cipher. Each army was financed by levies on its own locality, which exacerbated the resistance of the Spanish population. Napoleon gave the command of the army of Portugal to one of his oldest and wiliest of marshals, Massena, and he was backed by Ney, the bravest of the brave. However, only half of the total 140,000 that he committed to Massena were able to take the field effectively, the remainder being tied down in securing Massena's base in Spain and in protecting communications. So after the two previous attempts to drive the British irrevocably into the sea, Massena set out on the third. After a long siege of one of the fortresses commanding the entry route into Portugal from Spain, and a long wait to replenish all the supplies that had been consumed during the siege, Massena moved forward. In the interval, Wellington had used the time, firstly, to carry out a scorched earth policy on the route that Massena would have to follow to get to Lisbon from North Portugal, and secondly, to provide British officers and instructors to train and equip the Portuguese army so that it could stand alongside the British troops against French attacks. So by late 1810, Wellington had an extra 25,000 Portuguese troops to face Massena. He then concentrated his combined forces, some 50,000 British and Portuguese, at Busaco on a high ridge, paralleling the route that Messena was taking to Lisbon. There were a number of features on the disposition and capabilities of the two armies that had a decisive impact on the battle that ensued. On Wellington's side, the reverse slope of the ridge concealed the number and disposition of his troops to Messina. Wellington was able to move his troops quickly backwards and forwards along the track running all the way along as necessary as Massena's troops attacked up the slope Massena's command post. And he's going to send his troops up that slope, that steep, steep slope, and all the way along the top. The British and Portuguese troops, who he can't see, waiting to welcome him, he can't elevate his cannons to fire at them. On the reverse side of this, Wellington was able to press his artillery fire down into the mass French columns as they struggled up this slope. And when actually he was able to get troops to the top, what actually happened was that the steep climb of the slope broke the coherence of the columns. And as the French reached the ridge, they were repeatedly met by withering fire from the British lines. They were then attacked with the bayonet and bundled back down the slope again. When the French did manage to attain the ridge, Wellington was able to move in troops quickly along the track and then thus to drive them back down again. At the end of the day, the French had lost 4,500 men, the British and the Portuguese less than half this number, and the new Portuguese army, now adequately trained and equipped, had acquitted itself excellently in its first major engagement. Following the battle and having given Massena a bloody nose and a reason for further reflection, Wellington and his army slipped away completing the Scorchers policy that had begun earlier, before finally reaching the hills of Torres Vedras. The lines of Torres Vedras rose out of the mountains to meet. Scarcely anyone, even in the British army, had any idea of their existence. 
Scores of guns were disposed in elaborate redoubts and earthworks looked down from every height. Trenches had been dug and parapets raised. Palisades, abattis made every hollow and ditch that could give cover against the terrible crossfire the guns filled in, and every hillside turned to a vast exposed featureless glacier. Every pass was barred, every roadway transformed into a death trap. Behind, echeloned into immense depth, were other forts and redoubts, whose guns covered every way to Lisbon. So strong were the British works that they could be held by artillerymen and second-line troops alone, whilst the main army remained in the field behind them to strike down any attackers who succeeded in scaling their slopes and penetrating the crossfire of the guns. The army had at its surface a telegraph system manned by the navy, which meant that a message could be transmitted from one end of the lines to the others in 30 minutes. And this sort of system must be fairly familiar to all of those who've lived in Farnham and know the Pemberfore Hill or Signal Hill just outside Bentley, which is one of the chain of Pemberfore stations running from Portsmouth to London. This is the, the Navy signalling system. In October 1810, Massena's forces following Wellington arrived in front of the lines of Torres Vedras, and he began to realise the difficulties of his position. He had no information on the works that had been carried out in total secret. A loose translation of his comments runs, what the hell? Wellington didn't make these mountains. Some of his lieutenants advised attack, others caution. And it was the latter's advice that he heeded. He decided to remain in front of the lines and to wait for reinforcements. But this plan was deeply flawed. His army was struggling to find rations. All forms of communication with Spain were severed by Spanish and Portuguese guerrillas and the terrain in front of the lines offered little protection to his men. The degeneration of the French forces was rapid. On the 10th of November, with his army starving and deserting at an alarming rate, Massena gave the orders to pull back. Wellington moved forward to block any possibility of a return towards Lisbon. And Massena recoiled further, hanging on for three months in a desperate hope of reinforcements and supplies. By the end of the year, his army, which had begun the campaign with 65,000 men, was down to 45,000. And he decided to withdraw totally from Portugal, abandoning much of his stores and transport in the process. Wellington pursued him to the Portuguese border in order to ensure his total departure. But that stage did not go deeply into Spain. That was to come later. Without there being a formal battle, Torres Vedras marked the greatest victory for Britain against Napoleon's forces since Trafalgar. Wellington wrote, Napoleon's plan was always to try and give a great battle, gain a great victory, patch up a peace, as might leave an opening for a future war, then hurry back to Paris. We starved him out. We showed him that we wouldn't let him fight a battle at first, except under disadvantages. If you do fight, we shall destroy you. If you do not fight, we shall destroy you still. Torres Vedras began a series of hard-won victories over the French in Portugal, in Spain, and in France, with Wellington leading combined British, Portuguese, and eventually Spanish armies. Massena was defeated again at Fuentes de Honoro, Marmont at Salamanca, Napoleon's brother Joseph at Vitoria, and Soult again at the Pyrenees, and finally at Toulouse. As we all know, this led to the final defeat of Napoleon himself at Waterloo. There, Wellington used the same systematic approach that he'd done at Demiro 
Talavera, Busaca, hiding its infantry lines on the counterscarp of a long slope into the last moment, shattering the French attacking columns with artillery and then with sustained volleying and bayonet charges. They saw of Ney's repeated cavalry assaults by rapid movements into squares, and it was in the final moments when the Imperial Guard charged in columns in the old way and was broken by the withering fire from the lines of Wellington's veterans again in the old way that Waterloo was won and Napoleon began the long journey that ended at St. Helen. This podcast has been produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.